Section 66 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 97. London, December 19th, Old Style, 1749. Dear Boy, The knowledge of mankind is a very useful knowledge for everybody, a most necessary one for you, who are destined to an active public life. You will have to do with all sorts of characters. You should, therefore, know them thoroughly, in order to manage them ably. This knowledge is not to be gotten systematically. You must acquire it yourself by your own observation and sagacity. I will give you such hints as I think may be useful landmarks in your intended progress. I have often told you, and it is most true, that with regard to mankind, we must not draw general conclusions from certain particular principles, though in the main true ones. We must not suppose that, because a man is a rational animal, he will therefore always act rationally, or, because he has such or such a predominant passion, that he will act invariably and consequentially in the pursuit of it. No, we are complicated machines, and though we have one main spring, that gives motion to the whole, we have an infinity of little wheels, which in their turns retard, precipitate, and sometimes stop that motion. Let us exemplify. I will suppose ambition to be, as it commonly is, the predominant passion of a minister of state, and I will suppose that minister to be an able one. Will he, therefore, invariably pursue the object of that predominant passion? May I be sure that he will do so and so, because he ought? Nothing less. Sickness or low spirits may damp this predominant passion. Humor and peevishness may triumph over it. Inferior passions may at times surprise it and prevail. Is this ambitious statesman amorous? Indiscreet and unguarded confidence, made in tender moments, to his wife or his mistress, may defeat all his schemes. Is he avaricious? Some great lucrative object, suddenly presenting itself, may unravel all the work of his ambition. Is he passionate? Contradiction and provocation, sometimes it may be too artfully intended, may extort rash and inconsiderate expressions, or actions destructive of his main object. Is he vain and open to flattery? An artful, flattering favorite may mislead him, and even laziness may, at certain moments, make him neglect or omit the necessary steps to that height at which he wants to arrive. Seek first, then, for the predominant passion of the character which you mean to engage in influence, and address yourself to it, but without defying or despising the inferior passions. Get them in your interest, too, for now and then they will have their turns. In many cases you may not have it in your power to contribute to the gratification of the prevailing passion. Then take the next best to your aid. There are many avenues to every man, and when you cannot get at him through the great one, try the serpentine ones, and you will arrive at last. There are two inconsistent passions, which, however frequently, accompany each other, like man and wife, and which, like man and wife, too, are commonly clogs upon each other. I mean ambition and avarice. The latter is often the true cause of the former, and then is the predominant passion. It seems to have been so in Cardinal Mazarin, who did anything, submitted to anything, and forgave anything for the sake of plunder. He loved and courted power, like a usurer, because it carried profit along with it. Whoever should have formed his opinion, or taken his measures, singly, from the ambitious part of Cardinal Mazarin's character, would have found himself often mistaken. Some who had found this out, made their fortunes by letting him cheat them at play. On the contrary, Cardinal Richelieu's prevailing passion seems to have been ambition, 
and his immense riches only the natural consequence of that ambition gratified. And yet, I make no doubt, but that ambition had now and then its turn with the former, and avarice with the latter. Richelieu, by the way, is so strong a proof of the inconsistency of human nature, that I cannot help observing to you, that while he absolutely governed both his king and his country, and was in a great degree the arbiter of the fate of all Europe, he was more jealous of the great reputation of Cornille than of the power of Spain, and more flattered with being thought, what he was not, the best poet, than with being thought, what he certainly was, the greatest statesman in Europe. And affairs stood still while he was concerning the criticism upon the Cid. Could one think this possible, if one did not know it to be true? Though men are all of one composition, the several ingredients are so differently proportioned in each individual, that no two are exactly alike, and no one at all times like himself. The ablest man will sometimes do weak things, the proudest man mean things, the honestest man ill things, and the wickedest man good ones. Study individuals, then, and if you take, as you ought to do, their outlines from their prevailing passion, suspend your last finishing strokes till you have attended to, and discovered the operations of their inferior passions, appetites, and humours. A man's general character may be that of the honestest man in the world. Do not dispute it. You might be thought envious or ill-natured. But at the same time, do not take this probity upon trust to such a degree as to put your life, fortune, or reputation in his power. This honest man may happen to be your rival in power, in interest, or in love, three passions that often put honesty to most severe trials, in which it is too often cast. But first analyze this honest man yourself, and then only will you be able to judge how far you may, or may not, with safety, trust him. Women are much more like each other than men. They have, in truth, but two passions, vanity and love. These are their universal characteristics. An Agrippina may sacrifice them to ambition, or a Messalina to lust. But those instances are rare. And, in general, all they say and all they do tends to the gratification of their vanity or their love. He who flatters them most pleases them best, and they are the most in love with him who they think is the most in love with them. No adulation is too strong for them, no assiduity too great, no simulation of passion too gross, as, on the other hand, the least word or action that can possibly be construed into a slight or contempt is unpardonable and never forgotten. Men are, in this respect, tender too, and will sooner forgive an injury than an insult. Some men are more captious than others, some are always wrong-headed, but every man living has such a share of vanity as to be hurt by marks of slight and contempt. Every man does not pretend to be a poet, a mathematician, or a statesman, and considered as such, but every man pretends to common sense, and to fill his place in the world with common decency, and consequently does not easily forgive those negligences, inattentions, and slights, which seem to call in question or utterly deny him both these pretensions. Suspect, in general, those who remarkably affect any one virtue, who raise it above all others, and who, in a manner, intimate that they possess it exclusively. I say suspect them, for they are commonly impostors, but do not be sure that they are always so, for I have sometimes known saints really religious, blusterers really brave, reformers of manners really honest, and prudes really chaste. Pry into the recesses of their hearts yourself, as far as you are able, and never implicitly adopt a character upon common fame, which, though generally right as to the great outlines of characters, is always wrong in some particulars. 
be upon your guard against those who, upon very slight acquaintance, obtrude their unasked and unmerited friendship and confidence upon you, for they probably cram you with them only for their own eating. But at the same time, do not roughly reject them upon that general supposition. Examine further, and see whether those unexpected offers flow from a warm heart and a silly head, or from a designing head and a cold heart, for knavery and folly have often the same symptoms. In the first case, there is no danger in accepting them. Valiant quantum valiere possent. In the latter case, it may be useful to seem to accept them, and artfully to turn the battery upon him who raised it. There is an incontinency of friendship among young fellows, who are associated by their mutual pleasures only, which has very frequently bad consequences. A parcel of warm hearts and inexperienced heads, heated by convivial mirth, and possibly a little too much wine, vow and really mean at the time eternal friendships to each other, and indiscreetly pour out their whole souls in common, and without the least reserve. These confidences are as indiscreetly repealed as they were made, for new pleasures and new places soon dissolve this ill-cemented connection, and then very ill uses are made of these rash confidences. Bear your part, however, in young companies, nay, excel, if you can, in all the social and convivial joy and festivity that become youth. Trust them with your love-tales, if you please, but keep your serious views secret. Trust those only to some tried friend, more experienced than yourself, and who, being in a different walk of life from you, is not likely to become your rival, for I would not advise you to depend so much upon the heroic virtue of mankind, as to hope or believe that your competitor will ever be your friend, as to the object of that competition. These are reserves and cautions very necessary to have, but very imprudent to show. The volto scialto should accompany them. Adieu. End of section 66. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.